0: Let's turn back to Numbers chapter 21 for the first question, all the way back in Hebrew Scripture, Numbers chapter 21. I'm so glad that uh, the gentleman who asked this question asked it because sometimes I wonder if people think that I make up some of the illustrations that I give on Sunday mornings about some of the quotes from these ministers of the gospel, etc., Uh, like some of the ones I mentioned this morning. And yet, here's a question from someone, and here's how it reads. Uh, It says, Pastor Brian, in Numbers 21, uh, when the Israelites were dying from snake bites, Moses is told by the Lord to make a fiery serpent. This is verse 8 now, chapter 21, verse 8. The Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and it shall be that everyone who is bitten when he looks at it shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and put it on a pole, and so it was. If a serpent had bitten anyone, when he looked at the bronze serpent, he lived. The question says, Jesus quoted this incident when he talked to Nicodemus in John 3.14. Here's the part. It's interesting. I once heard a preacher say that this meant that God violated his own commandment, which forbade the Israelites to make graven images of people or things on earth, because that would result in idol worship and was an abomination to him. And in parentheses, I seem to remember that the people did end up worshiping this serpent on the pole later on in their history. The preacher's conclusion was, number one, the people attributed something to God that was just a natural phenomenon. In other words, this was just, you know, if you're out in the wilderness, you get bit by snakes, since there are a lot of snakes in the area. Two, Moses came up with his own solution, and three, this is another example of a fable in the Bible. How would you have responded to this preacher apart from the fact that he was questioning the Word of God? Well, the way to respond maybe is to say, have you ever read the book of Jude or Second Peter chapter 2 to where you think you have the audacity to sit in judgment on God and His Word? But, beloved, this is what is out there. I mean, did you catch the way this, this began That this particular preacher said that by telling Moses to do this, God violated his own commandment. Which it seems from the way it went on that he maybe started feeling uncomfortable with that. So now it's, okay, we'll shift from God violating his own commandment to, well, Moses came up with this solution on his own. And it's another example of a fable in the Bible. So how do you respond to a preacher like this, apart from the fact that he's questioning the Word of God? You really have no way to respond, because if you have no common denominator, namely that there is an authority, which is the Word of God, how do you speak with anyone? In other words, if if you are coming at it from the standpoint Scripture is the authority, and he's coming at it from the standpoint my mind is my authority. If it makes sense to me, then it's right, and if it doesn't, then it's not authoritative. You have nothing in which nothing in common in which you can even discuss it. So you can't. And this is this is uh, what happens if you try to interact with some uh, liberal theologians, liberal Christianity who who uh, hold to a view of inspiration that's partial, you pick and choose what portions of the Bible you believe, of course, then the natural question that arises is, uh, who's the authority on which parts? Okay, we're going to say Genesis 3 is a myth. Serpent talked to a woman who ate a piece of fruit. Now we all have big problems. Uh, That's a myth. Well, if Genesis 3 is a myth, why not say John 3 is a myth? John three sixteen. God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. If I can't trust Genesis 3, why should I trust John 3? It's totally arbitrary. So I appreciate your dilemma. You don't, you're, you're wrestling with how do you respond to this, but it illustrates the point. There is very little that you can respond to try to uh, oppose this kind of view when someone basically has the view that he can sit in authority uh, sit as the authority over Scripture and even over God, in essence, when He is the authority. And that is what is out there, which is why God directed, God the Holy Spirit directed Jude to write what he wrote and why uh, Peter wrote what we have been studying for too many weeks in 2 Peter chapter 2. All right, next question. I said to someone last week, I said I want to be very careful how I say this because obviously no disrespect at all meant to the word of God because it is the word of God but I will be glad when we're out of second Peter chapter 2 because it is so negative I mean it is but negative and necessary so lord willing next week we end second Peter 2 all right all right next question is uh, Hebrews chapter 10 all the way over to Hebrews chapter 10 Hebrews chapter 10, verse 38, and you'll notice uh, just when you first turn to it that in your Bible, this verse is somehow, it's either italicized or in quotations or uh, its quotation marks around it or it's indented, somehow uh, there is an indication to you that this is a quote. Every translation doesn't do it the same way, but they all indicate that this is a quote. And so Hebrews ten thirty-eight. now the just shall live by faith. But if anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. So the question that was asked is uh, because if we had time, we, we could go to this, we don't have time, but you can jot it down. Hebrews ten thirty eight begins with a quotation from Habakkuk two four, that's right. The just shall live by faith. That's actually at the end of Habakkuk two four, but here it begins. But where did he get the rest of verse thirty eight? And that's a very good question. And it, it really, of all the questions that were asked this morning or turned in, it's the one that stumped me the most this afternoon because uh, I was looking in my English Bible and going back to Habakkuk. There is nothing in Habakkuk about if anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. Nothing. But these, this is in quotation marks or italicized to show it's a quote. So what's going on here? Then a thought came to me. Ah, I wonder if the writer of Hebrews is quoting from the Septuagint which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, and that's exactly what is going on here. In the Septuagint translation, Habakkuk 2.4 begins with the phrase, If anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. Now the just shall live by faith. So the writer of Hebrews has quoted it loosely, actually kind of reversed the order, but it brings up an even more significant question. Where or how did the Septuagint translators render this now, my soul, you know, if anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. Uh, because if you look at the Hebrew of Habakkuk 2.4, it doesn't seem to say, if anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. And in fact, it reads completely different. Uh, in, in fact, just let me, just go to it. I'm going to confuse you. Go back to Habakkuk. Okay, go back to Habakkuk. Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, chapter 2. And look at how verse 4 reads, Behold the proud, his soul is not upright in him, but the just shall live by his faith. That's Habakkuk 2.4. Uh, the Septuagint says, starts out with, If anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him or actually it flips it around the other way. So now the bigger question, which you're not allowed to ask next month, I don't have time to research it, is where did the Septuagint translators come up with their idea that this should be rendered, uh, that if my soul, if, if, if anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. So this is a really complicated one, but just in simple answer to your question, uh, where did he get the rest of verse 38? He got it from the Septuagint translation of Habakkuk 2.4. All right? All right, next question is this. Let's turn to Philippians chapter 2. It's not really on this, but I want to use the the comment to illustrate Philippians chapter 2. It says this. um, My question is actually more of a compliment. It is so very nice to see our stage looking like a church rather than a lounge in a nightclub. It is beautiful today and emphasizes our love for our Lord. Well, I want to thank whoever, I don't know who turned that in, and thank you for uh, that compliment. And, I, of course, I had nothing to do with it, so I'll pass it on to those who did. But, uh, but as I thought about this, this compliment or this comment this afternoon, I thought, you know, it's interesting because I'm sure, though I haven't heard from them, there are others on the other side of the perspective. What I mean is there are probably others who are saying, I liked it way better the way it was before. Why did we change it? And yet someone's perspective, and each person has a right to his or her own perspective, says, I love the new look in the platform. And it just reminded me of Philippians chapter 2, where Paul says in verse 3, Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit. But in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others more important than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. And the reason why this passage comes to mind is because when it comes to things like this that are non-biblical, i.e., you know, decorations on a platform, styles of music, etc., it is so very... These are the things, by the way, beloved, that often split churches. It'd be nice, not really nice, that's a bad way to say it, but it'd be nice if churches split over doctrinal issues like the deity of Christ. That's worth fighting for you know, fighting over the deity of Christ, inspiration of Scripture. But, you know, whether the shingles on the roof are green or they're black really is pretty irrelevant. But those are the things that so many churches split over. And so when it comes to these preference issues, uh, again, whoever wrote that, I don't know who wrote it. I'm glad you like it. But if we change it back, will you do Philippians 2, 3, and 4? That is, will you look out not only for your own interests, but the interests of others? Because maybe if others, if as a leadership we decide now we want to go back, then do you have the maturity to not just want to have your way? And that would go for a lot of things that are preferential issues. Your preference and style of music uh, again, we could list these, but, but, but I, I, agree, and I say it sincerely. I'm thankful. Thank you for, for that, and I'm glad that there, there are people who like that. But there's a much bigger principle here, and that's a Philippians 2, 3, and 4 that says, you know what, you're in a church family, you're in a body, and you can't demand your way. And instead of demanding your way, you need to do what Philippians 2, 3, and 4 says, and that is don't, don't let anything be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others more important than himself. Maybe other people's preferences are more important than your preferences. Do you have that mindset? Uh, let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. In fact, let this mind be in you, which was in Christ Jesus. That is selfless, humble not demanding his way, not having to have his way. And so that is just a principle to keep in mind if you want to be a part of a church family. Now, if you want to just you know demand your own way and do your own thing, then you you need to go off and be an island. But if you want to be a part of a family, the body of Christ, you need to learn to submit your preferences, uh, your wants, uh, to the larger group, as Paul exhorts us here. So just an exhortation, Uh, for all of us just to keep in mind in in relation to those types of things. All right, next question says this. In a recent discussion with someone, he gave me the following argument. Number one, the most important thing is to go to heaven. Number two, those who die before the age of reason go to heaven. Uh, You'd have to defend that biblically, by the way. But number three, some who grow up end up miserable in life and in hell for eternity... Number four, it is not wrong to kill every young person, infant, preborn, because he, she will go to heaven. This seemed completely wrong to me, but I couldn't think of a biblical answer. Well, my response to that is, you're right that it seemed completely wrong. And the reason it's wrong, one of the many reasons why it's wrong, is because basically, uh, this person has done what all of us have a tendency to do. And that is, he or she has allowed his reason or logic to trump scripture in other words let's just assume all of these uh, these uh, positions set forth were correct but you'd have to be able to defend those biblically but for the sake of argument let's just say you could you could set those forth as very logical but if scripture teaches something different you can't let your logic trump scripture and this is what people do beloved let's take it out of this area uh, people will do this they will say well If they start being introduced to uh, uh, the sovereignty of God in election, predestination, often called Calvinism, it is not uncommon. And I have had this, people state this to me many times. Well, now I understand from the Bible that God has chosen in eternity past, he's going to save those whom he has chosen to save. It's fixed. It is certain. I don't need to pray about it. I don't need to do anything about it. I don't need to share the gospel because God will save. The Bible teaches God will save those that he is purposed to save. So I don't need to do anything about it. What's wrong with that? It violates scripture because God tells you to pray. God tells you to share the gospel. God, so when you allow your logic to trump scripture, no matter how logical it seems, it's wrong. And so the logic of this may sound okay at first, But it is wrong to kill people. I mean, the Bible is clear on that. So to say, well, we should kill young people because they will automatically go to heaven. But if they get to the age of accountability, which phrase is not in the Bible, but if they get to that stage in life, then maybe they'll choose to reject Christ and go to hell. So let's just kill them while they're young. Now your logic has trumped something very clearly stated in Scripture. You don't kill people even for your own skewed logic. So that would be my response to that, in addition to many other things that, that could be said. All right, next question. Uh, can someone be an apostate and or false prophet and not know it? I really I thought through this one a lot this afternoon after I got it this morning, because as we're going to see next week, Peter talks about, he says, it would be better for them not to have known than to know the truth and turn from it. Jude even seems to be more clear that he has in mind apostates, those who have been exposed to the truth. They know the truth. They walk away from the truth. And then they begin to teach contrary to the truth. So Jude definitely has that kind of person in mind. Peter seems to also. Although, although I think I could answer this question, yes for a season. In other words, could it be that it, someone is a false teacher and not know it? I think the answer is yes for a time. In other words, let's say someone is taught or trained heresy. They've been whether they were raised in a cult or raised in liberal Christianity. That's all the exposure they had, so they believe believe that liberal Christianity. Believe being what I mean by that is you know denying inspiration, denying the authority of Scripture, pick and choose. It if that's all they've ever known, then it might be possible for them to be, that's just what they embrace, at least for a season and not even be be aware that they are promoting heretical error. Possibly. Uh, but I, I'm a little hesitant to say it definitively because uh, both Peter and Jude seem to, seem to be pointing to the fact that there is a knowledge there in that false teacher that they have forsaken truth to embrace their error. But that's I, it's, a, it's a good question. It's when I wrestle with myself, especially when I look at people who it's fairly obvious by what they teach that they are false teachers. I mean, they deny the inspiration and authority of Scripture. I've often wondered and found myself wondering, do they know that they're doing that, or is this just all that they know? Uh, do they know they are taking a position that's contrary to truth, or is it just that they don't know any better? And that, so I, I, I appreciate you wrestling with that, and it's something I wrestle with also. All right, next question says this. uh, uh, Two questions from from a youngster here. uh, Is Catholicism a cult? The classic definition of a cult has historically been this. A group that denies uh, the deity or humanity of Christ and then also denies the sufficiency of his work. In other words, the classic definition of a cult is A group that is heretical in their view of the person and work of Christ, both. The person and work of Christ. So in other words, Jehovah's Witnesses, they deny the deity of Christ, that's a cult. Mormons deny the deity of Christ, that's a cult. And in in addition, they have wrong view of his work, but they they start there. Uh, The reason why I would not put Catholicism, now I think it's serious error, obviously, but the reason I would not put it in the category of a cult is because, and you can debate this if you you go deep into Catholic theology, but for the most part, the, the the problem in Catholic theology is not so much centered around the person of Christ, but rather the work of Christ. Uh, that, 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 of course, if you're familiar with Catholic theology, the Mass is a re-sacrifice of Christ every time. And so, therefore, it is not finished, like Jesus said, in Catholic theology. It's, it is finished, Jesus said, not in Catholic theology. Uh, he's re-sacrificed in every Mass as an ongoing payment for our sins. That's heretical. That is a heretical view of the work of Christ. Uh, that somehow what he did on the cross is insufficient. However, Catholicism does not hold to a heretical view of the person of Christ. They believe in his deity. They believe in his humanity. Now, you may have problems if they start saying, Yeah, but the, if you say, but they also, some Catholic theology holds to Mary being almost divine. Okay, but that's Mary. That's still not the person of Christ. So, all that to say, uh, I would not place Catholicism in the technical category of a cult because the classic definition is a group that is in heretical error, both the person and work of Christ, and it doesn't fit that definition. All right, next question. Turn to Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4. I think this is, I'm trying to read the right, I think that's Luke 4. I hope I'm right on this. In James 1, I'll read you James 1.13, which says... That let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But, but uh, 4-2, Luke 4.2 says of Jesus that he was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, being tempted for 40 days by the devil. And in those days he ate nothing, and afterward when he had ended, he was hungry. So I think what the person is wrestling with... James says God can't be tempted. Here, Jesus is tempted. Jesus is God. Yes, that is true. But notice even the focus of the temptations, they focus on Jesus in his humanity. Now, I don't want to divide the person of Christ because uh, he, he was not a split personality in the incarnation. But the focus of the temptations is on his humanity. So, so if, in other words, take a shortcut from the plan of God. If you're the son of God, command this stone to become bread. You're hungry. You need something to eat. Now, God never gets hungry, but Jesus in his humanity did get hungry. So the focus is toward his humanity. Jesus answered him, saying, It's written, Man shall not live by bread alone, etc. Took him on a high mountain. You know the temptations. Uh, so what you seem to be wrestling with is, Well, is Jesus God? Yes. Was he tempted? Yes. Does that contradict James 1.13? No, because uh, it was in his humanity that Jesus was tempted. Still his deity But there's no contradiction because you have the uniqueness of the incarnation, which which, uh, involves many uniquenesses against general statements. In other words, uh, a general statement, God is omnipresent, right? He is everywhere present. Was Jesus omnipresent as a man? Well, see, you've got a complication again with the incarnation. Because in his humanity, in his body, he was in one person or in one place at one time. So you have some unique factors related to the incarnation that would be different than the, 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 the truisms of God as a spirit being. Could God get hungry? Never. Did Jesus get hungry? Absolutely. Can God get tired? Never. Did Jesus get tired? John 4 says Jesus got tired. So you have unique factors related to Jesus and his incarnation. All right, the next question says this, and this is based on uh, Luke Uh, 15 and the story uh, so we're in Luke's gospel you can turn over to Luke 15 Uh, this is the story of the rich man and Lazarus and you remember Jesus told this story about you know the uh, rich man goes to Hades Lazarus goes to Abraham's bosom and so forth this is Luke 16 I'm sorry Luke 16 uh, right at the end there and the question is this you remember the man says you know there's this conversation going on between them. And so this is, again, a youngster that asked the question. In the story, uh, when the man is in hell and asks the man in heaven for water, does that mean that when you get to heaven, you will be able to look down into hell? Uh, this is not a, an easy question to answer. Let me explain why. You have another passage that you need to factor into this, and this would be Revelation Uh, chapter 6, where John says he saw the souls of those who had been beheaded under the altar, crying out, how long, O Lord, until you avenge our blood on those who are on the earth? Now what that is indicating then is that these souls under the altar were aware, at least, of what was going on on the earth or what was not going on on the earth. They knew that God had not avenged their blood as of yet. And so there seems to be at least these two cases where there was an awareness of either what was going on on earth or what was going on in Hades. The question, however, is, the question is, does God intend for us to draw from that normative lessons? And I'm not sure you could defend that. I'm not saying that it's it's wrong, but... But do we have other scripture that would indicate that is normative or are those unique situations because you have the one Jesus telling the story, Luke 16, the other during the tribulation period? I I can't answer that question. Uh, I don't know if once we get to eternity, if we will be able to look down into hell and know what's going on in hell. I I can't answer that. I'm not convinced that Jesus intended for us to draw normative conclusions from those unique stories but possibly Uh, next question let's turn to john 5 for the the answer to this one john 5 in the question is this in what way uh, is jesus the son of god since he has been god with the father and the holy spirit from all eternity in what way does the Father give His only begotten Son, as John 3.16 teaches? And what the person seems to be wrestling with here is that when we hear the phrase, Son of God, in our, from our cultural grid, we immediately think inferiority. Son of God. You know, Father's up here, Son of God down here. Jesus is less than God. And and I think this is cleared up if we try to, which is impossible in a sense, but if we try to put on the glasses of a first-century Jewish person. Because for them, the, the, the phrase, the Son of God, did not communicate inferiority whatsoever. And in fact, John 5 illustrates this, because in John 5, verse 16, it says this, For this reason... The Jews persecuted Jesus and sought to kill him because he had done these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My Father has been working until now, and I have been working. Now, when we would read that, we would just say, Well, that's pretty, you know, bland statement. I mean, there's nothing that's just earth-shattering about it. My Father has been working, and I have been working. We both have been working. But notice the next phrase, the next statement. Therefore... The Jews sought all the more to kill him. What? Yes. Because he not only broke the Sabbath, now watch this, but also said that God was his father, now here's the phrase, making himself equal with God. So the title Son of God, contrary to our 21st century American cultural grid, uh, the, the phrase the Son of God does not create, or does not communicate inferiority in fact it's a a title of equality as this verse indicates so in what way was jesus the son of god not in inferiority but relationally it's just the indication there are distinct persons in other words there's not one being who is god who plays three roles modalism father son holy spirit three distinct persons father son holy spirit And they relate to one another in their roles within the triune Godhead. But don't make the mistake of assuming that Son of God communicates inferiority. It actually communicates equality. All right, next question. Actually, interesting to see if I can find this other one. Yeah, because I had two questions on Mark 11, interestingly. So turn to Mark 11. And I, I'll read the first one because it's a little broader, and the second one zeroes in on the same uh, perplex, uh, perplexity. But uh, it says Pastor Brian, I'm always perplexed by Mark 11, 12 through 26 about the fig tree, which I know is an illustration of Israel. But what does that have to do with the rest of the chapter on prayer, specifically verses 22 through 24? Are these promises? How do we apply them? The other question, and you can see verse 22, after the fig tree incident, Jesus answered and said to them, Have faith in God, for assuredly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain be removed and be cast in the sea and does not doubt in his heart but believes that those things he says will be done and he will have whatever he says. Therefore I say to you, whatever things you ask, when you pray, believe that you receive them and you will have them. And then the other question is, Pastor Brian, Mark eleven twenty-two through 24, Another other passages seem to present faith as trust in God to do something we declare simply by believing what we say is going to happen, apparently apart from any revelation of God telling us to do such a thing. This appears quite different from other passages of Scripture that indicate our faith is to be placed in the declared character and will of God. You're right. So my question is twofold. Should the basis of our trust in God be placed in anything other than His revealed will, revealed will, as in our belief that something should will happen. That one is easy to answer. Should our basis of our trust in God be placed in anything other than his revealed will? No. Not, nor should it be placed in something that we believe should will happen. Now, you can go that route if you want. You are setting yourself up for major disappointment. In other words, if you define faith as belief that something will happen because I believe it, everyone in this room who's a Christian and is honest, would have to say there have been times in your life where you were convinced God was going to do something, and you prayed about it, and it didn't happen. In fact, the opposite happened. I can't help but think of Acts 12. James is arrested. The church surely prays for him to be released. He's beheaded. Peter is arrested. The church prays for him. He gets released. Why? God in his sovereignty lets James be be killed, Peter be released. You'll never be able to answer that question. How How many Christian spouses have prayed for years for unsaved spouses who died in unbelief? Prayed believing God was going to answer their prayer, knowing God was going to answer their prayer. And their spouse died in unbelief. Now, I'm, I'm not trying to destroy your faith here. It's, it's just a fact. You, we can't be ostrich mentality, stick our head in a hole in the ground, pretend this doesn't exist. This is reality. So if you, and this is a great question, a great insight, if you want to define faith as our belief that something should and will happen, you set yourself up for a major disappointment in life because it just doesn't work that way. Uh, are the supernatural activities in these passages to be taken literally or metaphorically? Uh, in other words, the faith to move mountain. Well, since we know Jesus never moved a mountain, and he had perfect faith, none of the other apostles ever moved a mountain or never even sought to move a mountain or prayed to move a mountain. I think we're really safe in saying that Jesus is using a figure of speech. It would be like us saying, you know what, I had to get something really quick, so, man, I ran to the grocery store and I went 100 miles an hour. Well, everyone understands what that means. That's, that's just a figure of speech. So Jesus, in talking about the importance of faith, it talks about moving a mountain, casting in the sea. But Jesus nor the apostles ever did anything that was ludicrous and called it faith. So nor should we. So what do we have to say about this passage? Uh, the, the, this, one, this, this one question, I'm always perplexed by this passage. And the other one's saying, I have questions. And you know what? Welcome to the club. Again, Again, if, if we're going to be honest here, there's not a person in this room that doesn't have questions about prayer. There's not a person. Again, going back to the spouse who prays, the saved spouse who prays for an unsaved spouse. They say, well, you've got to pray according to the will of God. Okay. Second Peter, God is not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. 1 Timothy 2, uh, God desires all men to be saved. So if I'm praying for my unsaved spouse, is that not according to the will of God? Scripture says it is. So why, why is my unsaved spouse not saved? Why could my unsaved spouse die in unbelief, or a relative, friend, whoever it is? Well, then maybe another thing that's often said, and I think this is true, we have to take this Scripture, as well as all Scripture, in context of all other Scripture. For example, if you read in Matthew's Gospel, Jesus saying that the, the re- my return, no one knows, not even the angels of God or even the Son of Man, but only the Father. If you take that scripture in isolation, you could assume Jesus is not omniscient, therefore Jesus is not God. But that is one statement. Is that statement true? Absolutely. Does that statement have to be taken in the context of all other passages of scripture? Yes. So also do these statements on prayer and uh, these statements on faith. And let me show you another definition of faith that has to be factored in to these types of passages. Look with me at Hebrews 11. Turn over to Hebrews chapter 11. And the right you know that Hebrews 11 is the faith chapter. It's all about faith. And verse 32 says, What more shall I say? For the time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah, David, Samuel, the prophets who through faith subdued kingdoms, worked righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, became valiant in battle, turned to flight of the armies of aliens. Women received their dead raised to life again. That's faith. It is But don't stop reading. You want to know another definition of faith? Others were tortured. We don't like that definition of faith. We like the other one. Miraculous, move the mountains. Get whatever you ask for. But faith is trusting God when you're being tortured. Not accepting deliverance that they might obtain a better resurrection. I kind of smile and read the way the writer of Hebrews says, not accepting deliverance. Well, frankly they didn't have any choice it's not like well i think i'll uh, i get a choice between being tortured or being you know delivered i think i'll take delivered but they were tortured still others had trial of mocking scourgings yes and of chains and imprisonment they were stoned they were sawn into a probably a reference to isaiah the prophet put in a hollow log and sawn into he was sawn into sawn into uh, according to historical tradition Were tempted, slain with the sword, wandered about in sheepskins, goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts, mountains, dens, caves of the earth. And all these, notice, all these, having obtained a good testimony through faith. All of these are people of faith. So my answer to your question is, yes, we all struggle with Mark 11, 22 through 24, especially if we just camp there and don't take it in the context of all of Scripture because it seems in isolation to say, you just get whatever you ask for. And if you pray according to the will of God, he'll give it to you. Well, the will of God is far more complex than we sometimes think it is. Sometimes the will of God involves his people being tortured, sawn in two, wandering in the desert, that's sometimes in the plan of God also. And it takes faith. It takes faith to accept the miraculous or experience it. It takes faith to accept the lack of the miraculous. As I was thinking about this this afternoon, and I want to be very careful how I say this. Um, very careful. I thought about this issue of prayer and answered prayer, and does God always answer prayer? Well, yes, there's a sense what you say. That, but my mind, for whatever reason, went to John 17, where Jesus prayed to the Father, and he said, I pray that they all may be one, Father, so that the world will know that you've sent me. Now, when we come to that passage, we say, oh, uh, Jesus prayed, so God obviously answered it, so we're all one. Well, we all are one positionally, but we're not one, all Christians aren't one practically in unity did god the father answer that prayer of jesus we don't even want to ask the question or we want to quickly say well yeah yeah he did he did it positionally but that in the context doesn't seem to be that jesus is limited to position because he says i want them to be one so that the world will see it and know that you've sent me that doesn't seem to be happening well it's not happening how do you wrestle with that So all that to say to both of you who submitted the question, you know what? When it comes to prayer, you have questions. We all have questions. But true faith, according to the writer of Hebrews, is trusting God regardless of whether you get the miraculous or you don't get the miraculous. Whether you get the answer you want or you don't get the answer you want. That is also faith. All right, next question. I've got... Two or three here more. I've got to go quickly to finish out. Uh, Three passages, John 18, Matthew 26, Luke 22. You're familiar with all three of them. It's when Peter takes out his sword and cuts off Malchus' ear. If Peter's action of cutting off Malchus' ear was sin, in what way? Well, in the way that Jesus repeatedly said to his disciples, especially in the last six months, I have to go to Jerusalem and be crucified. And so Peter's trying to stop it. So if you're trying to stop what Jesus says he has to do, I think we would all agree that's sin. In addition to that, you could say Peter was sinning in the sense of his uh, being a vigilante and not submitting to authority. Even though the authority, we understand it was wrong what they were doing, unjustly arresting Jesus. But Paul in Romans 13 and Peter in 1 Peter 2, they don't say, well, if the government is always just, then you obey and submit. It's you obey and submit. All right, next question says, uh, the issue of salvation walking down the aisle saying a prayer versus by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, how do these fit? Well, um, the issue of walking down the aisle and saying a prayer is sort of become or has been in our culture for a while sort of the methodology that people sometimes use, evangelists, etc., to get people to make a commitment to Christ. Now, there's nothing wrong with the methodology in and of itself because you can do that, or you can be around a campfire and say, you know, as an illustration, take this log, throw it in a fire to illustrate you're throwing your, your old life away, and you're going to live for Christ. I mean, these are just, these are just illustrations, methods, nothing wrong with them in and of himself. Have people been saved by walking down an aisle and coming and sitting down on the front bench and saying a prayer? Multitudes of people have been saved that way. There's absolutely no question about it. The problem is when the method becomes the message. In other words, when people begin to believe that that is how you are saved, by walking an aisle and sitting on a front bench and saying a prayer, that's the way you're saved, or the only way you're saved, or if you do that, then you're automatically saved. That's the problem. Because the Scripture says, salvation is by grace, through faith, in Christ. Now, if a person thinks, well, the way I need to do that is to walk down this aisle and say a prayer, fine. Then they are, that's the method by which they're placing their faith in Christ. I would even say this. There have been some people, I have no doubt, who have been saved by being baptized. Baptism does not save us. Scripture is clear on that. But if that is the way a person thinks, what I need to do to place my faith in Christ and surrender my life to Him, then that's simply the way they are trying to surrender to Christ. So nothing inherently wrong with that, except in our culture, in many ways, the method has become the message. And people think that's the way you're saved. And if you do that, then you are automatically saved, even if there's no change in your life whatsoever. And I know this person who asked this, this is their concern. They have family members, friends who've walked an aisle, said a prayer, absolutely no change in their life whatsoever. But it would be easy for that person to say, well, I'm saved because I walked the aisle said a prayer. And Scripture would obviously disagree with that. All right, two final questions on the sons of God in Genesis 6. Uh, Please expound on the sons of God. Are they around today? No, no. They were the unique event in Genesis 6. Uh, Who could they possibly be? Well, they aren't possibly anyone today because it was Genesis 6. And because both Peter and Jude tell us that God judged the demons who were involved in that by casting them to Tartarus as a deterrent so that no other demons would ever do that again. So it's, it's fairly safe to conclude that, that that was something that happened, and because of God's judgment, demons don't want to be incarcerated. They want to be free. They know from that example that God would judge them with incarceration. So, no. The, 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 are they around today? No. What is the difference between fallen angels and demons? No difference. The Bible uses both terms interchangeably. Fallen angels are demons. Demons are fallen angels. And then the final question tonight says this. If angelic spirit beings cannot progenerate, how did their physical attributes of giantism get passed on to human descendants when they left their own domain and took on human form? This is a good question because Jesus did say they don't marry, neither are given in marriage, they don't procreate, etc. But here's, I think, the answer is that when those demons or angels, in the case of Genesis 18 and 19, when spirit beings took on human form, they could function just like humans. In other words, you could ask this question. Can demons or angels digest food? No, not as spirit beings. They have no way to digest food. But if they take on human form, well, in Genesis 18 and 19, they did eat. They ate with Abraham. And so they were able to digest food. So the angelic spirit beings cannot progenerate, procreate as spirit beings. But if they take on human form, then they can do human functions. Eat, drink, digest, have offspring. And by the way, the the idea of them passing on their giantism, that is not explicitly stated in Genesis 6. Many scholars believe that. I would lean toward that view as well. That the Nephilim in Genesis six four is a reference to the offspring, but that may not even be the case. If it is the case, then the way they were able to pass on that was because you had human bodies carrying out human actions, procreating, and probably then due to the fact that they were demons, somehow that that factored into the giantism being passed on to their human descendants. That's just speculation at that point. But it's not speculation that they can carry out all human functions. All right, great questions tonight. Thank you for submitting those. Uh, Let's stand as we close in prayer together. Father, as we close out our, not only the the evening, but the, the Lord's Day together, thank you for the opportunity. We've had to gather this day, both this morning and this evening, uh, to sing our praises, lift our prayers, uh, be challenged by your word, fed by your word, encouraged by your word. Uh, And as we close out tonight, thinking about all these different questions and so many good ones, so many issues there to grapple with and practical ramifications, certainly one that stands out is the issue that all of us have wrestled with, and that is faith. Believing that you know what you're doing being willing to, as the writer of Hebrews describes, being willing to be those who don't get the miraculous deliverance that we might pray for and long for and want, and yet still trusting you, still believing you, still being faithful. May we be that way until Jesus comes. Grant us the grace and strength to maintain faithfulness through thick and thin, through adversity, through prosperity, through the valley, through the mountaintop experiences to maintain faithfulness to the Lord Jesus Christ in whose name we pray, amen.